you have a Bible, turn to Hebrews chapter 6. Chapters 4 through 12, heard from many of you already about this passage. It's probably one of the, well, it probably is the most hard to understand passage in the book of Hebrews and maybe even top few of the hardest passage to understand in all of the New Testament. We knew this passage was coming. That's why we do expository preaching, right? We know it's coming. I'm looking forward to it. I hope you are. Um, that's why we, we do passages like this. They're hard. You've got to dig in. Put your thinking caps on today. You're going to need them. Um, and, you know, we talked about this last week about staying immature. One of the ways that we can grow from immaturity to maturity is through expository preaching. That's why the pastors here at this church are doing it and doing it regularly. And we'll continue to do it uh, until the Lord comes and takes us. So let me start by reading to you the passage of Scripture that's before us today. Hebrews chapter 6, beginning with verse 4 and going through verse 12. Hebrews chapter 6, Bible's in the back if you don't have one, verses 4 through 12. Hear now the word of the Lord. For it is impossible, in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and shared in the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance, since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm, holding him up to contempt. For land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it, it produces a crop useful to those who, say, who for those for whose sake it is cultivated, Cultivated, receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed, and its end, it is to be burned. Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. For God is not unjust as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints as you still do. We desire each of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end, verse 12, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who, through faith and patience, inherit the promises. May God add a blessing to the reading of his word this morning. So remember, this is a Jewish community of Christ followers, some genuine, some not genuine, some imposters, but they were gathered together in community together, and they were under severe persecution. And the writer is exhorting them not to return to the old rituals, the old ways of Judaism, to the ceremonies and practices to find their ultimate hope, to, to find uh, their salvation, or to be continued and sustained in their joy. And not because there's anything wrong with the Old Testament, obviously, but the Old Testament has been completely fulfilled in the person and the work of Jesus Christ, eternal Son of God. And the author has been teaching us and them and revealing to us over and over again the supremacy and the superiority, and we'll see especially today, the sufficiency of Christ. And he's doing that, he's been doing that, and he's making these assertions that Christ is better. That's why our sermon series is called Jesus is Better. Jesus is better. He's superior than the angels. 
He's superior and better to Moses. He's superior and better to Joshua. That's what we've covered so far. Chapter 4 into chapter 5, he's superior and better to the Old Testament high priest, particularly Aaron, the first high priest. And one of the reasons he said that he is better and, and superior to Aaron, the high priest, is because Jesus' priestly order is after the order of Melchizedek, not the tribe of Levi, where the priest came from. Melchizedek, we'll learn more about him in weeks to come, is a man of a figure, a, a mysterious figure to some way that comes into the Old Testament and out rather quickly. And last week we said that the author stopped his teaching on the order of Melchizedek and, and Jesus' high priestly order to exhort the church, to reprove the church for their spiritual dullness and their immaturity. Look at chapter 6, verse 11. About this we have, excuse me, chapter 5, verse 11. About this we have much to say, but it's hard to explain. I'm, I'm talking to you about the spiritual, excuse me, this, this priestly order of, of Jesus, but you've become dull of hearing. Last week we said that in order to move from dull of hearing, milk drinking, we have to go to meat eating, maturity. Verse 14, solid food is by studying the word, we said, gathering community, learning, but building upon the fundamentals of the faith, in particular, chapter 6, verse 1, repentance, trying to save yourself, faith toward God, that pretty much is how you become a Christian, instructions about washing on hands, uh, excuse me, washing, <laughs> instructions about washing and laying of hands, and then the judgment of the end, the, the resurrection of the dead and the eternal judgment. We dealt with that last week. But one of the reasons we, I just mentioned last week, one of the reasons the author is so concerned about their maturity is because the possibility of some in the church, again, he doesn't know the heart of everyone, but some in the church could possibly fall away. Remember the context. Growing into maturity, he's saying, coming from immaturity to growing to maturity will help the congregation, our congregation, but their congregation, to expose those who are mature, excuse me, those who are immature in the church and those who are imposters in the church. Don't stay as immature. Grow, or you may be seen as an imposter, which brings us to our text. Let me first start, as we look into this text, to talk to you a little bit, I haven't done it yet, a little bit about apostasy. You never heard that word. It's from a Greek word, apostasia, meaning defiance of authority, a system of authority, a defection, a rebellion, a falling away, apostasy. Apostasy does not describe those outside the church per se or just unbelievers who just never came to faith in Jesus Christ. Apostasy is not that. Apostasy does not also describe, does not describe, does not mean believers, genuine believers who are struggling with Sin, maybe even giving into it for a season. Apostasy are those who fall away, who, who abandon the faith they formerly only professed to believe, but not the faith they possessed to have. The Greek word apostasy is used twice in the New Testament, but there are multiple scriptures that talk about apostasy, like the one here, uh, and there are individuals that we see within, within Scripture who actually do fall away. Okay? That's what apostasy is. Not professors. They're only professors, not possessors, and they fall away. One of the verses that clearly teach us and show us about apostasy is in 1 John 2.19. That I mentioned before, but I wanted to put it up for you. 
It says they, in the context of the church, he's writing to a church, they in the community, they went out from us. They were in the church, they went out from us. But they were not of us. Okay, they went out, they were with us, they were not of us. For if they had been one of us or been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain. There was a time that it had become plain to them that they all are not of us. Not everyone, John says, who seems like they are part of our church is really of us. And when they leave, it shows that they were not. They looked like us. They acted like us. They smelt like us, whatever Christian smells like, right? They were in a community, but at some point they renounced what they once said they believed. Now, if you've been a Christ follower for any amount of time, you have seen that in someone's life. They were baptized, they're involved in the church, they give their testimonies, maybe even been teachers of the word. And then verbally and publicly renounce their faith and turn back on Christ. Recently, it was Joshua Harris, if you've been following at all, a famous pastor, author. He wrote um, Kiss Dating Goodbye. He was a mega pastor at a church, renouncing his faith. That's apostasy, renouncing his faith. Now, I don't know what the end result will be for him. I'll leave that to God. Now, I said before, warnings are given in Scripture. One of the reasons warnings were given in Scripture in Hebrews, other places, is to call those, maybe you here this morning, who are maybe an imposter. Maybe you're coming to church, you're doing the thing, but you don't really have a genuine, vital, intimate relationship with Jesus. You never clung to Jesus and, and, and relied upon Jesus and trusted in Jesus alone, his work on the cross. He's Lord, he's Savior of your life. And the warnings don't teach that a genuine believer who is redeemed and reconciled and saved by grace alone, something he did not gain, he cannot lose. That's not, that's not what warnings are for. The warnings are given for self-reflection. They're be, to be taken seriously by all of us. Not because a true believer can lose their salvation, but God uses warnings. God uses warnings to help us persevere. He also uses warnings to help us examine ourselves. 2 Corinthians 13, Paul tells the church, examine yourself to see whether or not you are in the faith. Test yourself, or do you not realize if this is about, or do you not realize this about yourself that Christ Jesus is in you? Do you know that? He's in you. Unless indeed you fail to meet the tests. Now, Examining oneself, whether you're in the faith or not, does not mean, and warnings do not mean, that you ought to look and, and, and make an account, a record of all the things you do for God. And that's hopefully that it measured up to enough place where you can now buy yourself, earn your righteousness before God. And somehow you can now examine, look, all these things I've done, I think that's enough. That's not what it means because there's nothing you can do to gain the favor of God. It is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. But examining one's heart, and we're going to end with this as well, is what are you trusting in? Where is your faith in? And as we'll see today, what you trust in, what your faith is in, the genuineness of your faith, will have this outworking of spiritual fruits. And will, as it says here, in the end... You will persevere. Back in early October, I had the awesome privilege, maybe some of you have been to Charlotte, North Carolina, um, 
and I visited uh, Billy Graham's museum or library, whatever you want to call it, um, in Charlotte. It was just awesome. If you ever get a chance and you're down there, I mean, it'll bring tears to your eyes. God has done some awesome and amazing things through uh, the late Billy Graham. But the reason I was able to visit there, the reason that it was such an extraordinary visit and a beautiful place and a wonderful testimony of the wonderful things God has done in Billy Graham's life is because he persevered. If 20 years ago he said, ah, forget the cross, everything I've been saying all those years is a joke, there'd be no museum today. Be like, oh yeah, this is up to 1986 until Billy Graham, you know, that wouldn't happen. But the, because God in his grace provided for Billy Graham perseverance to the end. He finished well. Now, perseverance doesn't save you. But perseverance is the genuine evidence or the evidence of genuine faith. It's by grace alone, which brings us to our text. Now, three headings. We use this as if you're a preacher. You use this as an outline. You want to explain the text. You want to illustrate the text, and I've taught preaching classes, I tell the preachers, explain the text, illustrate the text, and then bring application to the text. So I'm like, you know what? Sound like a good outline to me. That's where we're going. So let's explain the text. Look with me in chapter 6, verse 4 again. Don't be immature. Press on. For it is impossible... In the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, have shared in the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away, to restore them again to repentance since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding Jesus, him, up to contempt. Let me me give you three, two quickly and one we'll rest on, Three possible interpretations over the years of this passage of Scripture. You need to know them. One of them I think we can immediately reject outrightly because it violates and contradicts other Scripture, clear teachings of Scripture. The other two are plausible, but I'm going to make an argument according to Scripture of the final, I believe, true interpretation of the text. The one that needs to be rejected is there are those who read this and say, you know what? A true, genuine follower of the Lord Jesus Christ has been born again of his spirit who has received the gift of salvation by grace alone, through Christ alone, and faith alone, through Christ alone, can at one point lose their salvation. They were once an enemy of God. They become children of God. They become children of God. They become alienated enemy of God again. And back and forth it goes. If you went to a Wesleyan church or to a Methodist church, have kind of a, what they call uh, from a teaching of Ar- Arminian background, you've heard this text preach and it's preached to scare you, to obey. One problem with that. The scripture are crystal clear, a genuine believer cannot, cannot lose their salvation. There's just three. I could do 33. John chapter 10, Jesus' own lips he gives his followers eternal life. Not 10 years, 15, 3, 6 months, eternal life. And they will never, it's emphatic in the Greek, they will never ever perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. No one. 
including you jumping out. I heard that testimony once. As if you're stronger than the grasp of God. First Peter, because of God's great mercy, he, he, God's mercy, he, God, caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last times. Ephesians chapter one, in him, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Well, how long is the sealing of the Holy Spirit? Verse 14, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. We're secure, genuine brothers and sisters, in the power of God, in the grasp of Almighty God. It's been said that the official flower of the Arminian, those who think you can lose your salvation, is the daisy. He loves me, he loves me not. He loves me, he loves me not. And you move around the pedal and hope on your last breath, it's he loves me. As a side note, think of this for a minute. If you, everyone I know that teaches about losing your salvation does admit, and everyone I know, maybe you don't, everyone I know, and I've talked to people about it and I've read stuff on it, that says if you lose your salvation, you can regain it. I mean, there's an in and out that's possibly going on through your obedience. If that's the case, then this passage doesn't apply because verse six says, if they fall in the way, listen, it's impossible to them restore them again. Impossible. Once you lose, you're done. Violate scripture. Can't, it can't mean that. It's a huge problem. The second interpretation that people have believed this passage means is that it's a, a hypothetical, a rhetorical uh, instrument, a technique used by the author to give you this ominous warning although it can't happen and if you have an NIV verse 6 says if you fall away I think a better translation is then have fallen away not if as if there's a possibility as if there's some sort of hypothetical okay a hypothetical warning is no warning at all right try warning your children and not following through and see what happens in a couple years right or it's like, listen, when you, when you go down, if, if you're traveling around the world, just be careful. Because when you get to the edge, you might fall off. I'm just saying, I'm warning you. It's like, no, it's not going to happen, right? So I, I think there's something to be said, but I don't, I don't think that's it. I think it's a real warning. The third interpretation I think is correct and is most faithful to the interpretation is that this is a real warning. But it's really pointing to and warning those who are not truly regenerate. Okay? It's not a warning to truly generate genuine believers, but a caution for individuals who have tasted the things of Christ, but yet have not come to the full understanding and acceptance and genuine faith in trusting Christ. It doesn't mean we should ignore it. Now, oh, yeah, well, I'm a, I'm a real Christian here, so I'm going to go to sleep. Well, I bet you Joshua Harris at one point thought he was a genuine believer too. So it's for all of us. And some of you may sound, some of you may sound, say, let me move this verse over. Some of you may say, you know, I tell you, it really looks like a believer. Look at the language. Well, that's the point, right? 
It's not like, oh, yeah, did you see Harry? He walked away from the faith. Like, yeah, well, there's no shock. (laughs) He lived like the devil himself. This was shocking because of this reason. It's the point. And you think, how, how could somebody like that fall away? Has anybody ever heard of the name Judas before? Right? And you're like, well, we know how the story ends. Well, the, the, the disciples didn't. Jesus sent out the 12. They went along preaching the gospel and seeing the power of God. Judas was one of them. When the 12 got together in the upper room, and Jesus is like, hey, when are y'all, gonna, when are y'all going to turn me in? Everybody didn't go, yeah, obviously. <laughs> Judas, he's, yeah. Well, you found out, dude. It's not like you were doing so well hiding it. You're going to disown the Lord. We know it's Judas. We were just waiting for the time to happen. They're like, oh, is it me? Is it me? Is it me? All right. When the Bible says in verse 4 that these apostates have once been enlightened, what it means is that the light of the gospel has shined on them, just not in them. Both passages, now this is something really interesting. The passage we're in now, if you look at the passage before it and the passage after after it, if you have your Bibles, this is why you should have your Bible with you, I'm not putting it up. Notice that the writer goes before this passage, talking about you and you and we and us. And after this passage, he starts talking about in your case. He goes from us and we to those guys and them. Chapter 5, verse 11, 12. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, verse 12, you need milk. Chapter 6, verse 1, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ. Verse 3, and this we will do if God permits. Chapter 6, verse 9, though we speak in this way, yet in your case. But if you look at chapter uh, 6, verse 4, for it is possible in the case of those who have been once enlightened. Verse 6, and then I've fallen away to restore them again. You see, he's going from us and we to those and them. There's obviously something going on here, a change of focus. Some people see this phrase enlightened to refer to baptism in verse 4, right? Those who have once been enlightened. They used to use that terminology in the second century about baptism. I don't think so. I think it's better to see chapter 6 here in our text, verse 4 and 5 and 6, in light of what the authors already told us about, and that is the Exodus experience of the Old Testament. He's been warning them over and over about what took place during the Exodus. The author said over and over that, listen, I want to warn you, don't drift away. He points to the 600,000 men who died in the wilderness, who never entered into the promised land, into God's rest. Maybe he's saying not everyone who was guided by the pillar of fire, they saw the light. They didn't have genuine faith. They never entered into the promised land. We looked at that the past few weeks. And here's the point. Those who fall away have been enlightened by the gospel. They, they perceive its truth intellectually only. True light, John says about Jesus, gives light to everyone was coming into the world. But we know that that light was rejected, John 3, because men love darkness. Once they've been enlightened, they've seen 
intellectually the truth, who have tasted the heavenly gift. Some people, again, go back to communion and say, well, these people have in, partook in communion in the church. I, I, don't, I don't think so. I think, again, we're pointing back to, to Exodus from the manna from heaven. Those who, the, those who tasted the manna, those who have experienced the manna from heaven, yet they died again in the wilderness because of unbelief. Again, that's in the prior verses. Some people in the church participated in the heavenly gift of salvation. They tasted the gospel. It was on their lips, but not in their hearts. It's a real sharing. There's not feasting in it. Same is true in the next phrase, and have shared in the Holy Spirit. Did not those in the wilderness share in the power of God? They, they, was, they, they had seen signs and wonders, and there are those in this community uh, uh, that, seen, that have seen maybe some, maybe some characteristics of a life that's been changed. The word share is an interesting word. It doesn't mean possess. It means association with. It's like we, we're associating, we are, we are somewhat associating and being involved in what's going on with the Holy Spirit. You say, well, that must be a believer, really? Matthew chapter 7. Jesus on a sermon on the mount. So not everyone in that day is going to say, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of God and kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father was in heaven. On that day, he says, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, cast out demons in your name, do mighty works in your name, and I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. You know what's interesting? He doesn't deny the power. He doesn't deny the work. He doesn't deny what, what, what's going on. What he denies is ever knowing the person. And that'll make your hair stand up. Verse five, tasted the goodness of the word, the word of God and the powers of the age to come. Many people have tasted and benefit from God's word. King Herod had Jesus right in front of him. Luke tells us that he, he questioned Jesus for a long period of time and then said, off with him, right? Think of Saul in the Old Testament. We did First and Second Samuel. There's a prophet in it, there was, excuse me, there was a proverb in Israel that said, is Saul among the prophets? Because he prophesied. Yet we know that the Spirit was taken from Paul. He, he had extraordinary graces, sharing of the Holy Spirit, but he did not have saving graces of the Holy Spirit. John Owen, Puritan, says this, It is a fearful thing to realize that a man may experience the extraordinary operations of the Holy Spirit and yet not experience the saving operations of the Holy Spirit, end quote. We learned in chapter 2, verse 4, that the, the, the church had experienced signs and wonders and miracles by those who delivered the word of God. That they, they had sensed the powers of the age to come. They've seen it. Same with the people in Israel. As they were wandering in the wilderness, plagues, parting of the sea, water from the rock, food from heaven, a real experiencing of God's power, yet without truly trusting in him relying upon him. This passage describes professors of faith within the church community who experienced the benefit of God's blessings in the church without ever personally committing themselves to trusting, relying on, and having faith in God. Enlightened with knowledge, tasting the good, sharing in the spirit, receiving the word, the witness of the power like they did in Egypt, but as they did in Egypt, they fell away. 
and rebelled, and God judged them. It is those, that description of those people, verse 4 says, it is impossible for that description, verse 6 goes on to say, that when they fall away, a verb is, is completed, decisive decision in the past, having results and completed in the future, in the present. It is impossible for those people who experience those things and then have fallen away, verse 6, to restore them again to repentance since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm. And holding him in, holding him up to contempt. Now, contextually speaking, these are Hebrew Christians, and the likely of the apostasy he's talking about would mean a return back to Judaism, and therefore a denial of the saving significance in the work of Christ's perfect life, his death, and the action in the end is, is terrible. And the question is can someone, can a Jewish person who's converted to Christianity, or it appears to be, and then repudiate Christ? Go back to Christ after going and repudiating him. And the answer to this, he says, is no. There's no going back. The issue isn't just repentance. Look at the text. The issue has to do with crucifixion. It has to do with the cross. It has to do with work of Christ. Falling away, rejecting Christ. The spiritual hardening that leads to permanency. The soul that can't be restored is impossible, he says. The person in, in, in the case is saying... I don't need Christ. I don't need Christ. I don't need him for any kind of reconciliation or communion with God. And that is something that God the Father will not hear. Ligon Duncan says this, he will have no one to say to him, Father, you do not need to crucify your own son for my salvation. I don't need it. I can get along without that perfectly fine thank you, end quote. To reject Christ after coming to the knowledge of the gospel is to say, like the Pharisees did, he's guilty as charged. Away with him. For them now to repudiate Christ is, is he's saying, is literally to take the hammer and the nails and go crucify him again. Mock him as the soldiers did. Right? Laugh and scorn him, because that's what crucifixion is, right? It's just not brutally, tormentally, you know, physically beating. It is the shame and the mocking that happens on the cross, stripped naked, hung out to dry, hung out on the cross to everyone to mock you and laugh at you and ridicule you. And that's what apostates do as they repute their once faith. That's the point. The point is that the people described here are not able to repent and return to faith in Christ onto salvation because of the hardening effect of their apostasy. Now just a note of caution, right? What happens to those like Joshua Harris and others? It's not up to me. I'm glad it's not. Right? We leave salvation to the sovereign power of God, remembering Jesus said with man, this is impossible. With God, all things are possible. We leave it up to... But, but these people aren't genuine. They look like it. And then the illustration. If you're still like, ah, I don't know, ah, I've been raised this way. I've been taught this way. It surely really does look like they're a blood-bought child of God and they could truly fall away. I hope these next two verses clear things up for you. We may not know exactly what he means about shared and maybe baptism and maybe the, the Old Testament. I think it's the Old Testament description of, of what took place in the wilderness, describing these apostates, the apostates. But the illustration here is clear. And what happens, and, and I've done some preaching. We have other preachers here. When you t- 
teach, when you explain, when you exegete the passage, explaining the passage, you illustrate the, what you're teaching so that you can understand what you just taught, right? That's what illustration is for. To illuminate or to shine a light on and to give further understanding of your teaching. That's why in verse 7, it opens up the word for. Chapter 6, verse 7. For, going back to what I just said, land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated, receiving a blessing from God, but... If it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. Okay? Two, there, there are, I think there are multiple verses that this author is thinking about. One, I think, is Genesis 3. If you know the story, Adam and Eve put in a garden to cultivate the garden. All's going well. They sin and rebel. God steps in, delivers the promised curses, and after giving the first gospel in chapter 3, verse 15, to Eve, he turns to Adam and he says, because you listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. It's not like he wasn't supposed to till the land, but now, cursed is the ground. Verse 18 of chapter 3, thorns and thistles, it shall bring forth for you. Now, because of sin, you got problems. It's not going to be this beautiful garden, no weeds. Now there are thorns and thistles because of sin. Uselessness will be brought up with stuff that you can now, with you can use. The other, I, I think, just clarifies this illustration and the actual meaning of this text is Jesus' parable about the sower. Remember the parable? Jesus teaches a parable about a sower. It's taught in all synoptic gospels. Synoptics means similar, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. All three of them teach about Jesus talking about a sower who spreads seed. The seed is the word of God. The seed is the gospel. And it is spread into four different types of soils. Not four different types of Christians. Four different types of soils. And Jesus explains to them how people respond through this, through this soil, through this heart. And he says there are four responses to the kingdom. There are four responses to the gospel. Only one of them is genuine. The other three are not. And he says the first soil that the seed of the gospel was spread was this soil that he calls uh, uh, hard-heartedness soils. It's hard-hearted. The birds come up. There's not much soil there. The birds come up and they eat the seed that was sown. First soil. The second soil of the gospel being preached in the heart of people. The second soil represents a shallow heart. Rocky ground, but shallow. It has some do- soil, but it doesn't have depth. Immediately, the word of God is, is planted. It springs up, he says. But then the sun comes up. It is scorched. And because it has no root, it withers away. The third soil, the heart of which the gospel is being, seeds are being planted, is a divided heart, a soil that produces Thorns and thistles. Seed fall among the thorns and thistles and and it chokes out the stuff that you want and yields no crop, Jesus says. The soil's rich, the soil is cultivated, the seed germinates, but then the thorns and thistles choke it out so there's no soil. There's no, excuse me, there's nothing good. Only thorns and thistles. But then Jesus goes on to talk about the fourth soil. The good soil. 
The soil that is good, and it grows. The gospel grows and increases. It, it yields a crop and produces 30, 60, and 100-fold. The seed bursts and gives life. From what I understand, a 10-fold crop is a lot. Here's a 100-fold, supernatural, genuine salvation. True belief has grown. Now, I want you to take a look at this parable. I got the verses up there. The second soil and the third soil that Jesus talked about, the shallow heart and the rocky ground. Listen to why it did not produce fruit. The, so- the soil that was shallow, the rocky ground, he says, when they heard the word, the gospel, immediately received it with joy. And they have no root in themselves, but endure for a while. Then when tribulation and persecution arises, mark that, on account of the word, Immediately they fall away. The third soil, the divided heart, Mark chapter 4, these are those who hear the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. The Hebrews writer to use this agricultural illustration, this metaphor, at the end of this warning is clear, I think. Think of the context. The, the Jewish Christians were under persecution and now receiving the sobering warning not to fall away like the shallow heart. The, 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 the second soil. The third soil, too, talks about desires for other things. What did they want to return to? Judaism, other things. I think Jesus and this author is clear that these people never truly receive salvation by the illustration he's teaching us. The blessings of God's rich goodness have come to them, but the seeds have been planted. Some have sprouted. Some sprouted with joy, but cares and and worries and desires and, and, and persecution choke it. The seed of the gospel is sown in the church. And there are some in the church that receive it with joy. And then some of the church seem to fall away as soon as their friends question them or, or certain things in their life become more important than Jesus. And they get caught up in that stuff and they seem to just move on. It's only until time passes, John the Apostle already told us, that they depart from us showing that they were never with us. Do you see the illustration And the point is to call the Jewish Christians who are under persecution, who are going back to those things that don't really give you eternal hope, uh, uh, everlasting joy, eternal salvation. Don't go back to those things that don't give you that. Stay with the gospel. Don't don't take your stand with with those who crucified Christ, who who called him a blasphemer, who, who, who said he's not the Messiah, off his head, crucify him. Don't do that. That's the illustration. I think the illustration makes clear the text. I really do. Lastly, application. Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, now we're back to you, your case. We, back to we, feel sure of better things. What better things do you feel sure of? Things that belong to salvation. J.C. Ryle said, I bless God. 
I bless God that our salvation in no wise depends on our works. But I never would have any believer for a moment forget that our sense of salvation depends much on the manner of our living, end quote. What he's saying is the only way we can have joy in our salvation, a full assurance of hope, is through the practical life changes, the godliness that flows from our relationship, our grace relationship with Christ. And the issue of confidence and salvation is what the author now is turning to. He issued a severe warning. Now he wants to comfort them. He wants to give them confidence. He wants to remind them of the assurance they could have in Christ Jesus. And he says, I, I, I think th- things better for you. I'm certain the good soil, there's, there's good soil among that church that the seed that has been planted will grow up with, with, with 60 and, and thousand fold uh, crop. And this warning that took place in chapter 5, verse 10, that started really there, now takes on this whole different tone as he brings this application to the life of the church. He says, beloved. That's a beautiful word of endearment. My loved ones. You see that? Beloved, a tender, pastoral change as he gives them four, I, I want you to see this, four progressive realities of the Christian life. There's four of them, and I'll point them out quickly. You could talk about it in community group. Four progressive realities, steps of the Christian life, beginning with the life that flows from their salvation. Work out your salvation. Not work it in, work, not, not work it in, work it out. And that's what he's saying here. There is a life that flows from their salvation. It's not the cause of their salvation, but belonging to salvation. You see that in, in chapter 6, verse 9? Things that belong to salvation. Okay? Things that belong to salvation. Where there is salvation... Where there's genuine salvation that's by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, there these characteristics will be. And he'll go on to explain what they are. But he's saying genuine salvation is by grace, through faith. But these things will flow. They, they are emanating witnesses. Right? So let's call it emanating witnesses of genuine faith. True salvation will flow from your life. What's the difference? What was the difference between Judas and Peter? Right? What's the difference between, between Peter and Judas? One failed in his full devotion to Christ like we do, while the other decisively repudiated him. One did not live up to the cross as we do, while the other one despised the cross. One repented and he pressed on, while the other one walked away. One persevered in genuine faith that emanating from his life, the other one had no sign of life and hung himself. The author is saying a genuine faith will produce fruits, which brings us to the next step. The evidence that demonstrates salvation, verse 10. For it is not unjust, for God is not unjust, so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints as you still do. What is this evidence? Number one, it's work. Genuine Christian life produces genuine Christian character. For grounds for confidence. And again, this work is not the basis of your salvation. It is the evidence of salvation. But nonetheless, it is seen by God who is not unjust, right? God's not unjust. He's just. He, he's, he's righteously just. And he will hold people accountable in their rebellion toward him. He's not going to ignore it. And he's just as just to see the devotion and service 
that you and I have. He won't overlook that. God remembers the ministry of love. And that gives us confidence that we are his. We preserve, uh, persevere to the end. What is the work of the evidence? What is this evidence that demonstrates genuine faith? Look at it. Two things. One, the love of God and the serving of the saints, the people of God. Have you ever met someone who says they're a Christian but lacks any kind of love and affection toward Christ and his word? They never sing, they never pray, they never gather in his word, they never gather in community. There's no love, there's no devotion, they're not excited about his words. His word, his teaching, the gathering of the saints. Now that doesn't save you, please. But it's evidence. I'll never forget. It's like one of those things, you ever have something happen, it burns in your brain. It was years and years ago. I'm at Crossgate, one of the mall, I think it was Crossgate, and this guy had this giant shirt on that said, Jesus is Lord or something. And you know me, I can't keep my mouth shut, right? I'm like, hey brother, how you doing? He goes, looked at me with a face and walked away. I'm like, all right, you got somebody else's shirt on. That ain't your shirt. You know, like, there's no love. Like, really, give that shirt back, right? I mean, think how you love others in your own life. You're you're devoted to their well-being. You want to spend time with them. You sacrifice to them. Well, is that not true with Christ? If you love him, you're devoted to know him, know his will. You spend time worshiping him, reading his word, speak often about him to others. Think about you guys when you were dating your girl, right? Hey, I met this great girl. I met this great guy. Had this great food. (laughs) Right? But you're willing to sacrifice for the honor of his name. You're willing to stand on whatever it is. Is there a sense of overwhelming from time to time? We were talking about that this week with somebody. A deep affection for who God is? Are you overwhelmed by his love from time to time? Dr. Richard Phillips says this, though God forgets our every sin, he remembers every act of love we express to him. What a marvelous grace this is and what great love the God of heaven has revealed for us. There is no greater incentive for us to turn our hearts from the world and its pleasures and give them to Christ who loved us so or to him who loved us so. Love of God. Next, look at, the, look at the work. Look at the fruit. Does your love uh, of God flow into the love of, of others? 1 John 4. We love God, why? Because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love the Lord and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he sees cannot love God whom he doesn't see. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. Practical, everyday, living out This fruit, the demonstration of love in community, is a sign of spiritual growth and spiritual health. We've come to know God and his love when we realize and respond to his his grace, his mercy toward us. It will overflow sacrificially in the love for other people. If you love God, you'll love his people. Oh yeah, I I love the Lord. I'm not involved in any church or any Christian. Well, that's not biblical. If we experience this interchange by grace alone, this, this new birth by grace alone and Christ alone, then it will produce something in us. And then we can have assurance. All this is what the writer of Hebrews is saying. He wants them to have confidence. He sees in them that they are this emanating work of genuine salvation. And he draws this conclusion that they have this spiritual fruit in their life, right? Where there's smoke, there is fire. 
emanating from genuine salvation, listen, emanating from genuine salvation will produce evidence that demonstrates our salvation and will affirm eternal assurance of our salvation. Look at verse 11. And we desire, that's a strong word in the Greek, longing, each of you to show the same earnestness to have the, the full assurance of hope, the full assurance of hope until the end. He wants them to have, he wants them to know this full assurance of hope that could be theirs in Christ. John Calvin said this, true faith always goes hand in hand with hope. What a wonderful word for us, is it not? We see the grace of God working in our lives. We give him thanks and praise for his faithfulness as he works in us as we press on, not grudgingly, but knowing in full assurance of our salvation and therefore the joy and the peace that comes with knowing Christ. We press on in the faith. It provides an ever-increasing awareness and possession of the riches of Christ that are ours with ever-increasing joy of knowing him and loving him. Verse 12, to close. So that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience, what? Inherit the promises. Emanating from genuine salvation will produce evidence that demonstrates salvation and will be affirmed. Our eternal assurance will be affirmed and the end resulting in what? The promises, the inherited promises of God. Don't be sluggish. He said that before. Don't be dull of hearing. Now he's saying, look, press on. Look at those in your life. Look at those around you. Look at those who have gone on before you. Be imitators of them, like Billy Graham. The point is, we should learn what faith and patience are all about by looking at other believers who have finished the race. And he puts this idea here, and you pick it up in chapter 11 with the hall, with the heroes of the faith. But here he, he'll, next verse, we'll see next week, he's talking about Abraham. So let me ask you, family, where do you look for your assurance? Do you look for your assurance of your salvation in the unchanging character of God on the certainty of his promises? You must look at the once and for all atoning sacrifice of Jesus Christ, his substitutionary sacrifice, not coming to church, not knowing somebody in the church. Our only hope is in his sacrifice. Don't look to yourself. Don't look to your spiritual disciplines even. It's the fruit, not the root. It's not yourself. It depends on God. Our salvation depends on God. He first loved us. That's why we love him. We are committed to him because he is faithful to us. We hold on to him because he holds on to us. It is through Christ alone we have our security. Now lastly, a word of caution here. Now let me say this to y'all, okay? Some people, I don't know if it's you, but some people look at this verse and it's their life verse. They are constantly, constantly, constantly questioning everything, right? Self-examination, self-examination, self-examination to the point of, I'm in, I'm out, I'm in, I'm out. That's not what this verse is supposed to do, okay? Dr. Lloyd-Jones made a, diff- made, made, a, made a good point when he said there's a difference between self-examination and introspection, right? Self-examination, he says, when you open your heart, you look inside, you bring the Lord in, you take spiritual inventory of your life. But at some point, you close it and you rest upon the, the, the righteousness of Christ, all that Christ has done. Introspection is when you open up and you go in there and you never come out, right? 
He writes, we cross the line from self-examination to introspection when we do nothing but examine ourselves. And when such examination becomes the main and chief end in our life, we are meant to examine ourselves periodically. But if we are always doing it, putting our soul on a plate and dissecting it, that is introspection. We don't want to do that. There's a balance here. Sanctification, growing spiritually, bearing spiritual fruit, growing in the likeness of Christ is the evidence of the grace of God and the perseverance. It is the handmaid, but that is the handmaid of assurance. The grace of God, perseverance, are the handmaids of assurance. We only experience the fullness of assurance which we all ought to strive as we grow in the grace and knowledge of Christ. It's not resting on our assurance, not resting on our experience, not resting on our spiritual growth, but we can look at those things and praise God for his grace and his mercy and his holding of us. It is the evidence of genuine faith and resting solely, trusting solely in Christ alone for your salvation, okay? Sanctification, working it out, is the evidence of genuine salvation. So let me ask you today. If you're unsure this morning, don't leave this place until you are completely and totally relying upon Christ. Maybe you're like, I'm not sure. I'm kind of doing my own thing. Today would be the day to bow your knee to the Lord Jesus Christ and say, I'm a sinner I know I'm a sinner. I know I'm guilty and I'm not gonna rely upon me. I'm gonna rely upon Jesus. He lived that perfect life. He died in atonement for my sins. He paid my sin debt and I am going to yield to him, rest in him. He is now my savior for my sins and Lord of my life. I'm not doing this anymore. I'm trusting and relying completely on him. Let that be today. Because three days later, Jesus rose from the grave and it signaled to the world that the sacrifice for our sin debt was paid in full. Trust him today. And maybe you're here and you're a follower of Christ and you're like, you know, I need to press on to maturity as well. It's okay to examine your heart. And look, am I, am, am, am I truly living a grace-filled life? Am I bearing fruit for the Lord? That's okay to ask that question. Just don't rest on that fruit for your salvation. Does that make sense? I want you to have this passage, this pastor who wrote this, wants you to have full assurance but not fake assurance, true assurance that you're resting on Christ alone, okay? Father, thank you. You alone see the heart. You alone see the heart. As we put a curtain around our hearts, we invite you in. Are we resting solely, completely, relying upon Jesus for our justification, for our salvation, for our reconciliation to you? Lord, if there are some here that are not, I pray right now, by your spirit, you would reveal that to them and they would yield to Jesus. Father, I pray for all of us here that we will have proper assurance not resting in our strength or even resting in our own perseverance, but resting in the finished work of Christ. As we sing this song, let it be not just songs, not just words singing to a screen, but let each and every one of us sing with our hearts full of assurance and love toward you. 
because of all that you have done for us in Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.